are listening to A Book at Breakfast with Mark Charlesworth and Chris Newton. Three rings to the elven kings under the sky, seventh of the dwarf lords in their holes of stone, ninth of mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. That's still the book. What's the breakfast? The breakfast is still mushrooms. No, no, it isn't. Right? <laughs> uh, but we are back to recipes from the world of Tolkien. It would be rude not to finish this trilogy of episodes off. Uh, and it's really weird because it's been how many months? About five months since we recorded those last two episodes, yeah. even though you're only just hearing them now. So um, and we recorded the first two episodes back in spring. But even then we talked about how sort of fundamentally autumnal the lord of the rings was mm. uh and so i was scouring the breakfast options uh and there's a porridge section mm. and very appropriately seeing as we're talking about uh the rings of power uh adaptation which is set during the second age uh it's there. something we make on the rings of the hob yes i yes. see where you're going flawless connection there uh there are different uh topping options for the porridge here there's uh Bayoning style hobbit style dwarven style rohan style gondorian style but today we're having numenorian style because why not <laughs> it's got a base and again we, we were delighted with baron's potato bread uh and i think the mushroom recipe that we um we didn't have to veganize them in any way. And, it was, and this recipe even states uh, milk or non-dairy milk. So I feel like we're adhering to the, the recipe without subtracting anything. <laughs> and it's porridge, which is really sort of, you know, the mornings get a little bit, getting a little bit chillier now. Mm. And, uh, and it, it feels right to have a sort of a hearty breakfast. So, yeah, we've got um, just... Just, just good old porridge, but the Numenorean twist. It's got a drizzle of maple syrup, uh, uh, f- chopped figs on top, and a pinch of cinnamon. Well, yours does, as ever. Yeah. I'm you're the picky one. <laughs> yes. So I'm just having porridge with You've no got thrills, bells, and whistles. I've got cinnamon. Cinnamon. Yeah. Dare we say the c word? No, it's only <laughs> September. But you know, cinnamon. It's got that festive feel to it. Um, I like. Yeah. Um, I do. I do like the occasional fig. <laughs> Uh, and I like, we'll talk about this later. Uh, we'll talk about this later with our special guests for this episode. In a book at breakfast first, we're going to be joined by some co-hosts for this episode. More on which later. Uh, but yeah, figs give it a, a vaguely like Egyptian feel, which I feel is appropriate as I think that that, uh, that I feel that there's an, an Egyptian flavor to, to Numenor. Anyway, yeah, we're, get, we're getting a good point. Yeah, I've not thought of that. We're getting ahead of ourselves. That, that beautiful uh, Bear McCreary score mm. that you were whistling at the at the top of the episode there. It's got something something evocative of the Nile about yes, it. Yes, like, I know what you mean. It would have fit right in in, um, what was it we went to see earlier this year? Death on, Death on, the, on the Nile. Nile yeah. Agatha Christie adaptation with Kenneth Branagh. That's the one. Um, but yeah, 
Maybe, maybe, other, maybe Agatha Christie's for next year. Mm. We shall see. Mm. Anyway, let's not digress too far. Before we go any further, I'm going to get in the corner of shame because we've got some corrections. I'll eat my Numenorean porridge while uh, Mark chastises me. You should eat your Numenorean words. <laughs> <laughs> in the previous episode, Chris said that Gandalf was inspired by a painting of Odin the Wanderer. He was actually thinking of the Beargeist or the Mountain Spirit by sorry, German artist sorry. Joseph Madeliner. Oh, I'm not sure. Madeliner. I Madeliner. Would say. Oh, it probably is Madeliner. Sorry, Joseph. Um, I've I've attributed your art to somebody else, and now I've mispronounced your name. <laughs> well, I have. <laughs> There's um, a beautiful painting of Gandalf um, by Roger Garland, which I think is the one we were touching on. Um, which clearly plays homage to to Beargeist. I actually so. posted both of them on our Instagram account recently, so make sure ah, you're following okay. us at Book at Breakfast, and you can compare and trust the two beautiful paintings. It's really sweet, actually. Apparently, um, uh, Roger Garland actually had advice uh, or guidance, I should say, from Christopher Tolkien on oh, how to wow. accurately depict Gandalf and the way he sat and it's how it's framed with the mountains in the background is definitely. Definitely a nod uh, to the mountain spirit there. But uh, anyway, as, as I said, we recorded our last two episodes way back in May. And we discussed all things uh, Lord of the Rings and ended, as we always do, by talking about adaptations. However, in the time between us recording and releasing those episodes, Amazon have released a brand new Lord of the Rings series, The Rings of Power. So their adaptation, uh, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power is set during the Second Age of Middle-earth, thousands of years before the events of The Lord of the Rings that we were discussing in the last episode, and tells the tale of the forging of the rings, as described in the famous poem that I read out at the beginning of this episode. So yeah, they've called it the Lord of the Rings, you know, for, for the branding. No, 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 what Rings of Power was. I did love the teaser they put out ages ago. It said before the Fellowship, before the King, before the Ring. Uh, but yeah, so given that this sequel, uh, sequel, uh, given this series is a prequel of sorts, some argue it isn't strictly an adaptation of the Lord of the Rings. But whilst Tolkien wrote about the Second Age uh, of Middle Earth and and Numenor and his. Uh, in things like Unfinished Tales and obviously there's a bit in, in the Silmarillion and various posthumous works. The only thing that Amazon own the rights to uh, is The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So we get a little bit about the Second Age in the Numenorean Kings section in the appendices and I think a little bit in Tale of Years. Um, but to our minds, you know, they're using The Lord of the Rings as the source material. So that makes this series another adaptation of, of the original book. So there. <laughs> yeah. So Amazon are going to have to fill a lot of blanks. A lot of blanks. A lot of uh, <laughs> a rondeer shaped holes, which sounds really weird. <laughs> <laughs> but all we know for certain is... This is for a reading from Appendix A. And if you've been watching the series so far, because we're only three episodes in so far, um, you'll know that there was a, a big war between the elves and the Dark Lord, basically. That's all you need to know. And as a reward for their sufferings in the cause against Morgoth, the Valar, the guardians of the world, granted to the Adain a land to dwell in, removed from the dangers of Middle-earth. Most of them, therefore, set sail over sea, guided by the star of Eärendil, and came at last to the Isle of Elena, westernmost of all mortal lands. There they founded the realm of Numenor. 
it might be worth pointing out actually that I suppose all of this is a massive spoiler. So if you don't want to know how the Rings of Power is going to end, you might not want to listen to any of this. But it's a bit like when we talked about in our in our Book Thief episode um, how death as the narrator of that will often just drop a massive plot spoiler halfway into an episode <laughs> an episode a chapter um and it's and it's sort of not about how it ends it's about how mm. people's lives play out during you know uh these these tragedies and they've got a lot of scope to go off page here hell of a lot. and yeah. develop things in the way they want and i guess Actually, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> let's let's well, park it for the discussion yeah, with our I'll, guests. I'll oh. continue my reading. And this section actually is is followed by a massive list of, of names, which I'm not going to read out. But that just gives you an idea quite how um, vast a time period uh, this history covers. So obviously for the TV series, they've had to sort of truncate it massively, which I know some people are upset by. But uh, anyway, um, where was I? There was a tall mountain in the midst of the land the Meneltama, and from its summit the far-sighted could descry the white tower of the haven of the Eldar in Erisea. Thence the Eldar came to the Adain and enriched them with knowledge and many gifts. But one command had been laid upon the Numenorians, the ban of the Valar. They were forbidden to sail west out of sight of their own shores, or to attempt to set foot on the undying lands. For though a long span of life had been granted to them, in the beginning thrice that of lesser men, they must remain mortal, since the Valar were not permitted to take from them the gift of men. And then, skipping forward just a few paragraphs. Artharazan the Golden was the proudest and most powerful of all the kings, and no less than the kingship of the world was his desire. He resolved to challenge Sauron the Great for the supremacy in Middle-earth, and at length he himself set sail with a great navy, and he landed at Umbar. So great was the might and splendour of the Numenorians that Sauron's own servants deserted him, and Sauron humbled himself, doing homage and craving pardon. Then Artharazan, in the folly of his pride, carried him back as prisoner to Numenor. It was not long before he had bewitched the king and was master of his council, and soon he had turned the hearts of all the Numenorians, except the remnant of the faithful, back towards the darkness. And Sauron lied to the king, declaring that everlasting life would be his who possessed the undying lands, and that the ban was imposed only to prevent the kings of men from surpassing the Valar. But great kings take what is their right, he said. At length Artharazan listened to his counsel for he felt the waning of his days and was besotted by the fear of death. He prepared then the greatest armament that the world had seen, and when all was ready he sounded his trumpets and set sail, and he broke the ban of the Valar, going up with war to wrest everlasting life from the lords of the west. But when Artharazan set foot on the shores of Amman the Blessed, the Valar laid down their guardianship and called upon the One, and the world was changed. Numenor was thrown down and swallowed in the sea, and the undying lands were removed forever from the circles of the world. So ended the glory of Numenor. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) But again, it's a tragedy, and we get to see how that's going to play out. And I'm so intrigued. Like, I don't know how they're going to fit all that in, even five seasons, because I think actually Sauron 
was there for hundreds of years. There is, there's more information in, in the tale of years and the same tale is told in, in just a bit more detail in the Silmarillion. But I love that idea that Sauron is taken by Alpharazon as prisoner. Mm. But over time, presumably from his jail cell, he gets the ear of the king and persuades him in that classic it's a bit kind Hannibal of like, Lecter. Very, very <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. Uh, and I love that, you know, that. And I'm going to sound a bit lofty here, but there's something almost like Promethean about mm. it. Like, well, surely a great king like you should have the power of the gods. <laughs> and um, we talked last time about, you know, the the applicability of Tolkien. Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying it represents anything or it means anything, but in terms of like applying it to modern life, again, without wanting to get a bit lofty, there is something of the sort of, the climate crisis about this mm. tale you know the greedy you know the, the the men meaning humans live in this island paradise you know almost a kind of eden uh, and they have one simple instruction you know like you, you you're not gods but but they're greedy and they want more they want more than paradise and it ends in ruin you know their, their lands are flooded and so take heed that's a fascinating analogy yeah that's great. I, wonder, I wonder if they'll lean into that with the with the with this series but mm. um yeah, so that's that's what we know. But anyway, you've been listening to us ramble on about Middle Earth and Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings for, uh, well, enough time now, frankly. Uh, it's time for the first time ever to have some special guests to join us on A Book at Breakfast. Uh, earlier this year, Mark and I uh, were guests on a show called Bite and Write, uh, which is hosted by the wonderful uh, Catherine Olson. Uh, and... We'd just done an episode on Rose, hadn't we? Doctor Who. Yeah. And then she said, what book would you like to talk about? So we said, <laughs> mm, should we pick a new book? No, let's talk even more about Rose. <laughs> and we, we struck up uh, a fast kinship because it turns out she was as big a nerd as we were and loved Doctor Who and, um, and loved Tolkien as well. And mentioned that she and her friend Lorien had their own Tolkien podcast, A Sacred Fellowship. And they've just been working their way through the Silmarillion. Uh, I think they've just got to the voyage of Erendil and the War of Wrath. Uh, so, welcome to A Book at Breakfast, Catherine and Lorienne. Thank you so much thank for having us. So, uh, <laughs> just tell uh, our listeners a little bit uh, about yourselves and your podcast. Lorienne, if you can well, go first. <laughs> absolutely. All right. Catherine and I have been hosting a podcast called A Sacred Fellowship since May of 2020. We met online in another discussion group uh, that uses sacred practices, uh, centuries old sacred practices to examine literature. And I thought this would be awesome with the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And Catherine said, I'll do it with you, but let's start with The Hobbit. <laughs> so we have gone chapter by chapter through The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and we are near the end of the Silmarillion. I know. Yes, yeah, so all that's left to do is really the second age. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, speaking of which. And of the rings of power. And the third age. And the third age, yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they were off by one age. Um, so I have to ask, because I, I, I wasn't immediately clear uh, with the Sacred Fellowship, which of you was the newcomer? That would be I, oh, In May wow. of 2020, I had not read a word. Of wow. Uh, so it's been, uh, yeah quite quite the immersive experience then these last couple of years and it's Absolutely. been delightful really to um 
at first I was just going through and going, oh, she has these questions and I can't answer them for fear of spoiling the story. But she kept on guessing things exactly right. And she kept on having these insights that I was dying to discuss. And so it is so enriching to be kind of caught up and she has done such great work. It's, it's really interesting that you should mention that, you know, the fear of spoiling the story, because this is... Um, <laughs> Normally, Mark and I uh, release one episode a month, and it's a different book each month. But we had so much to say about The Lord of the Rings that we came back for a second episode. Uh, but then we had so much to say in the second episode that here we are for a third episode, uh, primarily because we, we always end our discussions by discussing adaptations. And there were quite a few to get through with The Lord of the Rings. And we actually recorded our discussions back in May and said, but by the time this goes out in September, there'll be a new series. Uh, so in, in the introduction, we gave, uh, you know, a little reading uh, from, uh, you know, the, the, the Numenorean King section of mm. uh, appendices. Uh, and, and it suddenly occurred to me, for people who are watching the show who haven't read the books, better give a spoiler, you know, <laughs> that things don't, <laughs> things don't end well for the Numenoreans. But then Mark and I were <laughs> discussing that off with a lot of great tales, and especially with Tolkien, it's not so much about the spoilers and it's more no. about how people live through these incredible times and these tragic events. Right. Right. And that's important. And he tells us right off. I mean, even at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, yes. you already know who lives. I know. <laughs> so... I, couldn't believe... I went back and reread uh, the prologue just recently. I thought, I can't believe how much of this like went over my head at 15. <laughs> it tells, yeah. tells you everything that's going to happen. <laughs> everything. Well, it's a little bit like Romeo and Juliet, where at the beginning yeah. of the play, they have this prologue saying, guess what? This exactly. is a story about people who are about to die. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> um, as someone I, for whom nothing can get spoiled, I am I am delighted because I don't think you can spoil these stories. And the more you know, the richer it gets. I think mm. so. I, I definitely think so. But anyway, so yeah, we talked about the Peter Jackson films. We've talked about the BBC radio dramatization. We talked about mm. the, uh, the the Ralph Baxi. Uh, I still can't remember <laughs> if it's is it Bax Bax Baxi Bax. Bax I already heard it. I've always heard yeah. it as Baxi. Yeah, the cartoon. <laughs> yeah, um, the one with the rotoscoped orcs. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're here today to talk about Amazon's The Rings of Power, uh, and we're only three episodes in. So, uh, of uh, I think there are going to be eight episodes this season and five seasons in total. So there's a lot to come. Ooh. But I thought yes. we should uh, share with the listeners our our general impressions of the series so far. But before we do, I'm just going to uh, read a little excerpt from one of Tolkien's letters. Um, and uh, I think many fans will be familiar with this letter to Forrest J. Ackerman regarding the infamous Zimmerman script. But for anyone who doesn't know, <laughs> uh, during Tolkien's lifetime, uh, he was given a film treatment uh, for a, a Lord of the Rings adaptation. And as you can probably imagine, he didn't have... Uh, many good things to say about it um but but i find that the letter really interesting because even though uh, tolkien's no longer with us reading his thoughts and his opinions on this this treatment you get a sense of what he may or may not have approved of so it gives you some uh kind of ammunition is not the word i'm looking for but you know weight to an argument in favor of certain you know, decisions when it comes to adaptations. And he writes, the canons of narrative art in any medium, medium cannot be wholly different. And the failure of poor films is often precisely an exaggeration and in the intrusion of unwarranted matter 
owing to not perceiving where the core of the original lies. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think a lot of people misinterpret it to an extent uh, and that they, they focus on kind of, you know, unwarranted matter and therefore anything that isn't to the letter of the books must not be in there. But I think that, that well, my interpretation of that is very much, you know, uh, not perceiving where the core of the of the original lies. And I think it's that idea if, if the message is the same, you know, if, if, if the heart of it is still there. And for me, the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's other writings are about hope and, and, and fellowship and courage. And I think that fundamentally, if those elements are there, uh, yeah, so... Just quickly, before we really get into it, I'll just go around everybody uh, one at a time, uh, because Mark and I spoke briefly yesterday, but uh, Laurie and Catherine, we haven't spoken at all. As I have no idea what you thought of the series, so um, I'll just go in the order you're in on my screen. Catherine, Catherine if you'd just like to uh, give us your general opinion on the, the series so far. Personally, there are a lot of things that I have as unanswered questions, obviously, since we have a lot that we don't know about the Second Age and how far they're able to take things in terms of the source material. I am someone who has written fan fiction since the age of 13, so almost 29 years now. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that always strikes me is the ability of the people to take what is there and focus on the material in the blank spaces, as it were. What mm. is not known? What is not drawn out, as it were? Sorry, I said as it were twice. And <laughs> but I think in terms of the world building, I am enjoying it immensely. I am finding great intrigue in the power plays. So the um, particularly for me, the relationship between Joran and Elrond. And the conversation about 20 years being one thing to a dwarf versus one thing to an elf. Mm. That was something that I saw real thought put into that. I see a lot of interest in the characters that we have met so far. I kind of gasped when we met our Farazon because we know if we have read the books or heard anything about the Calabeth, yeah. that this guy is not going to end up being our favorite character. And so I'm <laughs> interested to see how early we see the seeds planted hmm. for the downfall of Numenor through this person's arrogance and the deception that he engages in with a certain person. Yes. <laughs> so that's my general summary. Moving on. Yeah, I'd, I'd say I, I pretty much agree with, with everything you said there. And uh, let's just let's just get this out of the way first, because everybody who listens to a book at breakfast knows that we can't go five minutes without talking about Doctor <laughs> Who. Uh, and yes! I, was, I was amazed by how many things I saw in there. That I thought there's, there's definitely some Doctor Who influence here in, in this series. <laughs> and that, like you say, that that relationship between Durin and Elrond, that was that was so um, almost sort of twelfth Doctor and Rose esque in, in in some aspects, or even uh, with with the twelfth Doctor and River, you know, and Derillium, and I don't know, just the idea of um, what it's like to be immortal and how and how do you form relationships with with other other peoples? Um, yeah, but we'll, we'll maybe get on to the Doctor Who stuff later. <laughs> well, I do have to say that um, there's this moment in the eleventh hour with Matt Smith when he's in his first episodes. Mm. Where he talks about um, Prisoner Zero being a centuries-old being and 12 years as a pit stop. Yes, yes. And so that's what really kind of comes to mind with any uh, 
interaction between immortals and those who simply have long lives. Massively, massively. And talking of the 11th hour, actually, uh, both Mark and I were saying that uh, the stranger, whoever the stranger is, the mm-hmm. scene where Nori is uh, feeding him and he's, he's sort of munching the snails whole. Uh, <laughs> we got definite fish custard vibes from that. Fish fingers and custard vibes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Mark, how about you? General impressions of the series? Oh, I think it's fabulous, and um, I, I'm probably coming at it from a slightly different perspective to everyone else here. In that, I I read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit shortly before the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films came out in the early 2000s, um, and I loved them but they were very much a moment in my life. Um, and to me, the rest of Tolkien's works are um, all about world building and going into the background and the history and the law in a way that I find quite impenetrable, to be honest. And to me, it has to be wrapped up in a good story with mystery and intrigue and deception and characters double-crossing each other and building relationships. And I'm sure there's a lot of that in the Silmarillion and in a lot of the unfinished tales, but it's never been in a way that I can get a handle on. Um, I like a good, easy to grab story. I'm a Coronation Street fan, um, which is a a soap in the UK. Um, And I never thought that I would get to live out uh, a new Tolkien story that really grabbed me uh, as much as I did when I was 15. So I thought my my days of experiencing something new from the world of Tolkien had passed. And a lot of people would say I was a Philistine for having <laughs> these opinions. And I'm sure there's people on forums that hate what Amazon are doing with this series, taking minimal source material and crafting something that, you know, could just be seen as fan fiction or an interpretation out of it. But I absolutely love it. Um, I didn't expect to. I thought it was going to be really heavy on law and quite sort of cold and sort of quite factual. And it, it isn't. I, I watched the first episode with trepidation and I thought, this is really good. And it it kind of gives me that feeling of coziness I had of going on an adventure and speculating about things and wondering about them when I was a teenager. And then I watched episode two and it's like, this is great. Oh, oh my word, I'm really getting drawn in. And then me and Chris watched episode three together last night. And I'm just totally hooked. And I love it so much more than I thought I would. And it's really taken me back to that feeling of being 15 years old again and experiencing a, a new insight into Tolkien in a way that has totally grabbed me. And I'm finding it so nostalgic. And that nostalgia is perhaps colouring my view of it that, I can really see no wrong with it. And if this talk descends into criticism on the basis of sort of flaunting the canon of Tolkien and and law and things like that, I'm probably not going to have much to say because I'm just going to be a yes man in this conversation. So it's great to me. Uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with BoJack Horseman, which seems... Yes. uh, Right, great, fantastic. (laughs) Well, I think oh, absolutely brilliant. Um, I have oh. never watched an episode. <laughs> oh, you love it. Uh, well, I think I'm going to be Mr. Peanut Buster in this episode. <laughs> I'm, I'm only going to have positive and probably not particularly intellectual things to say about this. But as I don't think I will be speaking that much uh, in later parts, I hope you don't mind me taking a little bit of time to share my thorough enthusiasm and love for what's come so far in this series. 
No, thank you. That was beautiful. And uh, just just to jump back in for a second, uh, you know, I, I was there coming at it from somebody, you know, with with the history of Middle Earth you know, <laughs> under each arm, sort of frowned, don't, don't get it wrong. Um, <laughs> and yet I, I loved it. I mean, a few minor quibbles, but generally I, I absolutely loved it. And watching it with Mark, I, I felt like I got the best of both worlds because I, you know, almost to, to see it again sort of vicariously through you and to sense that excitement. And, you know, Mark and I have been friends for a very long time. And we were, you know, when we were 15 years old, we were 15 together discovering Lord of the Rings and obsessing <laughs> about it. And it was very strange these, this last week or so. It's like we've been teenagers again, excitedly texting each other back and forth. And it's, yeah, it's it's been magical. Uh, so, Laurieann, how how about you? Well, I will say some similar things. I'm a very late bloomer. I, you know, was born after the Beatles broke up. Uh, you know, I didn't watch my first Doctor Who until 2013 uh, and have never stopped. And of course, uh, you know, if I hadn't read any of Tolkien, I certainly had not seen the films or any of these things. And so for me, it's all about catching up. And for once, I get to see the new thing. Yeah. So that's really fun. <laughs> for me to be on the same page with everyone. I love being in Middle Earth. I am loving these episodes so far. If there are issues with it, that's not what lingers. What lingers is how much I love it. I love the time. Uh, there's not real quick cuts between the different stories. You really spend some time with the story before you move to a different group of characters. I am loving that. I am Team Diza. I love her oh, so yeah. much. I'm just, oh my goodness, I love her. Uh, and I was thinking about, you know, what can they do? Well, one of the things I really noticed was because I just watched The Two Towers this week. Mm. And the act of arming Theoden is clearly what's echoed in the disarming of the elves as they approach yes. Alan. Oh, The yes. lighting, um, the 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 seriousness with it and everything. And so I think they are doing precisely what they can to be as true and respectful as they can. And all I can say is I'm just hoping the state loosens up just a little bit and I'll blab one more thing. Catherine and I are both classical musicians. There comes a point where the composer has no more say. Okay. <laughs> and if I'm going to play a piece by Mozart or Bach or or Beethoven, Beethoven doesn't get to complain anymore. And I realize we have an active estate and it's not even 50 years since the professor has died. Mm. But there will come a time when the estate will see the benefit, I think, more than the the deficits of these adaptations. And I find the Amazon series quite respectful and I'm yes. loving it. I haven't seen three yet, but don't worry about spoilers. Ooh. I'll see it <laughs> That's lovely. I really like your analogy there, Lorraine, about the composer, because I was in Germany a few weeks ago and I went to see uh, a classical pianist um, playing at a church there. And he was doing interpretations of pieces by Beethoven and Chopin and Debussy that were complete, completely unrecognisable from any melodies you would be able to whistle from any of those songs. And I I was speaking to the guy next to me in broken English and broken German between us. Uh, and I said, was that what he was just playing there? Was it the Chopin one? And he was saying, I have no idea. But you're, <laughs> you're right. Classical music is an excellent example of taking source material, sure. and making something that can be very much your interpretation that might stray so far from the original. So I love that analogy. 
Thank you. Um, we're sort of back to the uh, another of Tolkien's letters. You know, the 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 other minds and hands infamous quotes that people are still arguing over exactly what he meant by that. Um, but again, you know, we mentioned his reactions to adaptations before, but I think it's important to remember the reason he was looking at that film treatment was because he had sold the rights, you know, with, with as much respect. Um, he, he was quite clear in his own lifetime that he either needed complete creative control or, uh, you know, quite a substantial amount of money. <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder, I wonder how the estate will will, will react over time because I, you know the series has um Simon Tolkien's blessing uh and his involvement which is which is quite encouraging and um I I I I'll try not to go on about this but I'm still on a high from it I actually got to go to the uh the premiere of the first two episodes of Rings of Power down in Leicester Square the other week um and yeah Simon Tolkien was there as was uh, John Howe and Bear McCreary and all the cast were there and it was I was really quite <laughs> bowled over by the whole thing um and it really yeah th there was such a, a wonderful warm atmosphere there and the showrunners whose names I've momentarily forgotten uh JD Payne and Patrick McKay gave a little speech before the screening and I really felt you know no matter how much they might change or deviate from what's what's actually written down especially what's written down in some of the materials they don't have <laughs> copyright for but i really feel like their fans and you know their hearts are absolutely uh, in the right places um yeah so oh wow well, that's nice we all seem to be on the same page it was interesting i almost messaged you beforehand uh to, to test the waters um in case this descended into some dreadful uh debate um and i thought no it'll be more fun to keep it raw for the listeners but uh looks like we're all pretty much on the same page which is really wonderful um and i messaged i mentioned when i, I messaged you earlier there was one aspect of, of um this series that i wasn't going to touch upon uh which was some of the the negativity surrounding it online from sort of racists and misogynists and you know people who basically have a problem with people of color being cast yep. in a fancy television series in 2022 and i uh I, but I no trouble with dragons oh no immortality no, no trouble with that whatsoever and or yeah <laughs> we'll get to uh morvid clark in, in a while and how wonderful i think she is um but you know she's way too short to be galadriel <laughs> and, and yet for all these purists aren't complaining about that for some reason uh, mm, very interesting they, yeah they have a, a problem with harfoots with uh, uh, brown skin which goes to yeah. show they've never read concerning hobbits which is <laughs> a direct quote <laughs> from Tolkien yeah <laughs> um but the, the reason I wanted to bring it up actually because I said oh, I don't want to give that kind of negativity the time of day because these people aren't real fans in my opinion and they funnily enough have completely misunderstood the core of the text so as far as I'm concerned they don't have a leg to stand on with their arguments um but I over the last week or so and generally you know since since the series was announced but specifically recently there has been such um a, a push against all the racism and the negativity and the, the trolling. And I found it really heartening. Um, yeah. I'm sure most people have seen the pictures online of Elijah Wood and Sean Astin, Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd wearing their, you know, you're all welcome here t-shirts. I believe- Catherine and I are getting out. Yeah, <laughs> I've ordered one too. <laughs> and um, when, I, when I was down in Leicester Square, um, I met up 
the, with the fact there was an entire pub taken over by the Tolkien Society. It was it was quite <laughs> surreal. It was almost like uh, you know in a horror film where someone uh, you know some weary traveller goes into a, a dark country pub and then suddenly oh, they they realise everyone in the pub has got uh, you know fangs or <laughs> horns or something. <laughs> and I thought if anyone strayed into this pub, like yeah, it looks like a normal pub, just coming in here for a drink. Hang on a minute, some of these people have got pointy ears and they all <laughs> seem to be talking about unfinished tales. <laughs> um but honestly it was like to to get out of the internet uh, and to get that down there in the real world among the real fans who were so supportive uh, uh about the idea of inclusivity and diversity in both the fan base and the adaptations it was really heartening and um i met uh, a lot of lovely people from the uh, the german tolkien society including um a lovely gentleman named Richard, uh, named Sebastian Richards, who I said I would name. He gave me this wonderful badge. I'll hold it. I don't know if you can really make it out. L- lovely little pin badge. Uh, and it says, um, the worth of everyone arises from the worth of the other, which I think is a kind of rewording of a quote from the Silmarillion, which is uh, all have their worth and each contributes to the worth of of others. And and he explained, and you can't really make it out, but... It's got a sort of a crowd of sort of, should we say, racially diverse elves around the text. Uh, and he was basically going Good. out and giving these badges to everyone who was supportive of, you know, diversity in the franchise. And everyone was wearing them. And it was just such a wonderful experience. Well, Great. one thing that it brings to mind is there's an article many years ago, I can't remember where it was published, from George Lucas talking about the principle of is there not room in this universe for all of us? Mm. And in the, that context, he was actually specifically talking about the diversity of fandoms and the diversity of the uh, backgrounds that people come to Star Wars and his other works with. But I think yeah. in terms of Tolkien itself, in this a particular adaptation, I really see a lot of, is there not a room in this universe for all of us? Because it is a matter of all have worth and the worth of people is an inclusivity. I feel as though... There is not anything, I disagree with all of the people saying Lord of the Rings has become too woke. <laughs> I hate the word woke. Yeah. I really, really hate the word woke. And the reason yeah. I hate it is because people see inclusivity as something that is extraordinary and beyond the mm-hmm. expectation that is reasonable. And I don't think it's reasonable for there to be exclusivity in any project. I think that if there is a way to tell a story that includes any person of any race, any person of any background, this story needs to be told and it does not matter whether or not that's inclusive. It should be inclusive wherever the story demands it. And I absolutely love that we have dwarves and elves of different racial backgrounds. And I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And maybe this will lead the or pave the way for a future redoing of the whole Lord of the Rings films, uh, where there will be more diverse casting, because we yeah. deserve that. And well, the story I, deserves that. I do wonder, as much as I love the Peter Jackson films, but you know, we, we could talk all night about you know the scouring of the Shire and Tom Bombadil, and you think, yes, well, we could <laughs> by the time um, you know the, the Rings of Power has finished, we'll be probably you know. 26 27 years away from the fellowship of the ring will mm-hmm. the world be ready for a new adaptation and could it be told in a serialized format 
and yes. with yes. literally yes. a whole series for each volume you know and they could get yes. all the details in there I mean I, I'd be quite excited for that <laughs> I want that I want that there's already been three adaptations of Spider-Man in that time so it's, <laughs> really yeah. it's it's funny how we, we treat certain things with a kind of reverence where it's been adapted and it kind of has to sit there untouched and that becomes the definitive version for a while and some things were rebooting every five years in a case right. of a lot of their Batmans yeah. and Spider-Mans of this world. Yeah. So I don't think it would be untoward to attempt a new adaptation of the Lord of the Rings novels. Um, mm-hmm. I think that would be quite interesting. And I think if they did do it as a series, a bit like the Rings of Power, it would distance it from the film and it would be a statement of saying, we're not trying to replace the films. It's in a different format, so we're taking a different angle at it. Yeah, I mean, look mm-hmm. at A Christmas Carol. How many adaptations yes. of, of, of that are there? You know, including one with Muppets. That's, you know, the best one. Let's be honest. <laughs> Let's be honest. Absolutely. Um, Michael Caine uh, sold it 100%. Oh, oh absolutely incredible. Yeah, we, we'll be talking about A Christmas Carol in our December episode. And a large <laughs> part of the episode will mainly be talking about Michael Caine. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's not Christmas. It's September and we're here to talk about Rings of Power. So let's get into it. Well, that's uh, if anyone was coming into this expecting a fierce debate, uh, about inclusivity or whether or not the adaptation was any good they'll have all uh, <laughs> stopped listening now but um, so in order to make some kind of sense of, of the discussion I thought we could kind of break it down uh, in, into di- different aspects uh, of the story so I think I want to start with the elves um, <laughs> and I touched earlier upon um, Morvid Clark and I was just from the first second she was on screen, I just could not take my eyes off her. She was just in such presence, such power, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and such subtlety as well. So much, so much, so much of it is is just in in her eyes, and I'm just I'm blown away by by her. Yes, she's beautifully cast. Absolutely, <laughs> for people who say, "Oh, she's grouchy or whiny or something," it's like, no, this is this is a fierce, determined warrior yes <laughs> no problem absolutely <laughs> i love the look she gives she's underwater and she looks at the sea worm yes. and the look she gives i would probably quiver up and turn to jelly oh, i yeah. love that look <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and you know what's interesting in terms of you you were talking about you know, the, the armor and, and the parallel with with the mm. helm's deep scene in in two towers yeah. um Initially, I thought, oh, she, she looks quite a lot like Kate Blanchett, but actually, she looks nothing like Kate Blanchett. But it was the way that the way they've shot her sometimes, with uh, particularly close-ups of her eyes, where it's kind of soft focus around her. And I thought there's definitely a kind of a nod there, a, a bit of a love letter to the Jackson films, which I thought yes. was really sweet. Um, Very nice. Uh, Elrond, I don't know why, but it took me a little bit longer to warm to him. I think because I was so in love with uh, Hugo Weaving's Elrond. Oh, same. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it, we're funny things, us fans, because I remember when I first saw The Fellowship of the Ring thinking, he, he looks nothing like I imagined Elrond. But over the years, <laughs> I've just come to absolutely fall in love with his portrayal. Um, mm-hmm. But I can't remember the actor's name, and I, uh, but I like him. <laughs> He's from Yorkshire, yeah. so, you know, it's not too far away from us in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> so he has my well, support. One thing that struck me with Elrond is his portrayal in the Rings of Power reminds me a lot more of Elrond in the Hobbit movies than it does of Elrond in the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, There's interesting. This, uh, yeah. Interesting 
play between him and the others, but um, in the Hobbit movies, we see his friendship and his kind of fellowship with Gandalf in the scenes at Rivendell. And it yes. seems to be a person who has the luxury of seeing peacetime or seeing a place where he can control things rather than a person where he's in a constant state of war. That's true. So his interactions with Joran in particular, one of my favorite shots is this progression of him walking through Joran's home and having to duck down under the (laughs) ceilings that are too low for him. Yeah. And it might come off as comedic thing rather than a person acknowledging the space that he's in and having Mm. respect towards it. And so I kind of really liked that relationship visually between the two things and i don't know if it's intentional or if it was just something that really seems characteristic for elrond yeah yeah and it, yeah it's interesting i think it's also with with this adaptation it's worth bearing in mind you know quite uh how far we are from the lord of the rings uh, i mean you know th- these characters are already old but like for example you know uh arwen has has not even been born yet (laughs) and and the things that elrond is going to live through uh, you know the last (laughs) alliance like the elrond we meet at the council of elrond is is a is a much much different person yes um and uh going back to that um uh, i i because i always go back to doctor who (laughs) um in terms of that that you know the 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 kind of um the, the ache of immortality um and there was a wonderful moment i think it's when galadriel's on the raft with halbrand uh and she's sort of explaining her quest and she says uh, uh I've, I've written it down i was so enamored with the, with the quote she said i have pursued this foe since before the first sunrise bloodied the sky it would take yeah. longer than your lifetime to speak the names of those they've taken from me uh, mm-hmm. and i thought you know that actually with galadriel it's almost probably true but i thought there's some there's some doctorish hyperbole going on there uh <laughs> the, the 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 lofty <laughs> eternal mm-hmm. being talking to the mortal and it really put me in mind of um twice upon a time where peter Capaldi <sighs> is talking about the the avatars that contain people's memories do you know how many right. of you i could fill i would shatter all of you a, a life this long it's a battlefield and it's empty because everyone else has fallen i got pure doctor vibes from that moment i don't know about you mark yeah, that hadn't crossed my mind actually, but now that you mention it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and I have to while I'm going down this this train of thought, well, when we'll talk about the dwarves now, perhaps. But uh, when they was it just me or when Elrond first g- uh, goes into their halls, uh, they have a they sort of chant Kaza Doom. Yes, that was <laughs> that was pure Santaha. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the dwarves are kind of like if Santarans were honorable. <laughs> are the Santar are the dwarves just little potatoes with beards? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> have, have you ever tried hitting a dwarf on the back of the neck? <laughs> Maybe they've got probic vents behind their plats. Oh. Who knows? <laughs> oh, what um, it actually really reminded me of uh, your comment about it, the doctor. Uh, reference from twice upon a time Mm. i was thinking of the day of the doctor in which uh the three doctors are trapped in the tower of london yeah someone asked have you ever counted the number of the children who were on california the day the was destroyed and matt smith's doctor 
has the, that moment where he doesn't want to count them, but a David Tennant's doctor mm. talks about the actual figure. And it yeah. reminds me of Galadriel's poetry that you just spoke in terms of some people, they know exactly the figure, but they also know the exact person assigned to each number in their head. And I feel as mm. though Galadriel's quest is fueled partially because she is able to remember every single one of these losses whether or not she does it on a regular basis is not something we really consider. But I think it is, if you asked her, who is the 317th person to fall in your lifetime that you have known, she would absolutely be able to name that. Oh my She's God. She's carrying them. Would fall. And I think that has a lot to do with why she takes up Finrod's quest. And yeah. it reminds me kind of a, I don't know if it is, seems like a more holy version of the oath of Finrod. This is Nixon's Creek is what I think of all that, this a battle towards the end and nothing can impede it and it is a war of total annihilation. She is fighting this war until the last place where her enemy can be found. And so I think that that is a kind of a counterbalance to that. And I don't know where it's going from there, but that's kind of what I'm keeping in mind when I'm watching these episodes. Yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And in fact, um, it starts, you know, qu- quite low key when you get, you know, uh, young Galadriel with the, with the little sort of origami swan ship. Nice little nod there to anybody who wants to see uh, swan ships. Uh, but um, and then suddenly it just unexpectedly you get the War of Wrath uh, and the Shadow right. of Morgoth. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm only a few minutes in and I've just seen a dragon kill an eagle. And, yeah. and that gave me Day of the Doctor vibes. The, the the thing where we zoom into the painting and suddenly, oh my God, we're seeing yes. a time war. You know, it was sort of right. showing this almost finale level spectacle within the first five minutes. It was such yeah. uh, an immense way to to start the show. But um, but going back to the dwarves, mm-hmm. I said we we wouldn't be those people that um that that complain about uh, deviations from the law but there is quite Durin's a big one with, with Durin yeah so what are your thoughts <laughs> on on that uh just, I'll try very briefly for any listeners who who aren't aware you'll have probably heard even if you've just seen the Hobbit films um you know that Thorin was of the line of Durin's folk uh and th- there are multiple Durins throughout this uh, this this lineage but the idea is that he's the same person reincarnated as it were each time born again so there couldn't ever be two Dorins at the same time yeah. and yet uh in rings of power we have during the third and during the fourth i believe so what are our thoughts on that <laughs> uh, you, it's not gonna i'm not gonna lose sleep i mean <laughs> I, I i i see that it's not you know maybe it's one of those things that pushes the estate to allow them to do more Maybe. Because if they, yeah. they can do something that egregious, maybe they just better have the rights to the, to the material. <laughs> yeah. So there, yeah. that's the best day. I'm, I'm not going to not going to sweat it. We, no. I, You know what? I, I wish it actually weren't a character named Durin. I wish mm, it were just mm. some other dwarf and his father who were lords of, yep. of Casa Doom. Um, almost instead having them renamed. Burin. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well. I being uh, someone who does quite a lot of uh, reading and writing in the supernatural kind of uh, realms, my thought when I thought of Doran the Third and Doran the Fourth coexisting was, are we sure that that Doran the Third is not actually a manifestation of the one who has gone before, almost in the, the style of an avatar in The Last Airbender thing, whereas he is able to mm. receive wisdom and counsel from those who have been him before. And so... Mm. 
for all I know, this is a hallucination, but I'm not going to write fanfic upon the fanfic. <laughs> like, like, like a multi-doctor story. Yes. <laughs> Lock the two Durins in a room together. <laughs> um, well, I, the reason I ask is I have a bit of a bonkers tinfoil hat theory about the two Durins. Oh, ah. I may be way oh, off with this, but of course, so uh, because they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion and in the um, Rings of Power section uh, in, in that book, Sauron is given a name, Anatar, the, the giver of gifts. And he, yes. uh, so he's not, you know, the sort of gauntleted, terrifying, heavy metal cover, Dark Lord mm -hmm. uh, right. that, that we see on the battlefield. He's this very, uh, we, we assume, beautiful looking man beautiful. who goes around beguiling people and charming them. Uh, and I think we're going to see that to an extent, uh, but they can't use that name. And I, I read a very tantalizing interview with the showrunners where they said, you won't see Sauron coming. And we know that at this age, he's, you know, he's not the discarnate spirit he will become by the Lord of the Rings. Uh, he can take on any form he likes. So I suddenly, I, I could be way, way off here, but it, I thought it was really fun to theorize about. Uh, I don't know if you're Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans. Yes. Uh, but, you know, uh, the whole uh, plot with Dawn uh, in, in Buffy, how you think she's just her sister that we've never mentioned before. That's a bit <laughs> weird. And then the revelation is actually she's something much more than that. And and there's this kind of glamour upon them. I thought, well, what, what if Sauron is posing as as as, as during the third? And you can imagine a scene where they're explaining uh, how during the fourth is the reincarnation. And somebody says, but, but hang on, who's that guy? And then the illusion shatters. <laughs> and, he, and he said, yeah, because he's encouraging them to mine for Mithril and he's encouraging them to, to, to accept the rings. And I wondered actually, are there multiple guises he has in, in different lands? Are there, is there going to be a revelation where multiple characters are actually, you know, guises? I don't know. Wow. That would be cool. I really like that approach because um, it, talks about obviously and if we're going to go with the peter jackson films yes. but they were all of them deceived yes I exactly that if sauron takes ah. a different form in each of the races that he has interactions with so people never realize that he has actually come to them in it already because they think yes. that it is something that has not happened because they have not seen sauron as the way that he appears to the dwarves or the elves or anything like that exactly yeah I kind of, um, I feel like I know Chris quite well and uh, Chris is a writer and I sometimes think the way his mind works is the way writers' minds work. So I almost feel like that verges on a spoiler because Chris is inhabiting <laughs> the writer's mind and has he arrived at the same place that the script writers were? So I put a lot of credo in Chris's opinion and I'm quite <laughs> interested to see if that is what will come to pass now. And it would be a hell of a finale. Yeah. Right? Mm. So, intriguing. Uh, but but maybe Sauron isn't Durin. And again, obviously, this is not a work that uh, Amazon have the rights to. But I've got a copy of um, uh, the history of Galadriel and Celeborn here from Unfinished mm. Tales. Uh, I just like to uh, we get a little snippet in there when it says, "In Eregion, Sauron posed as an emissary of the Valar sent by them to Middle Earth, oh. thus anticipating the Astari." Uh, and you know, it goes on to how these. Yeah, persuading people to take these rings and you get uh uh he perceived at once that galadriel would be his chief adversary and obstacle mm. yes um but then so of course that idea of posing as an emissary from the valor or the gods as it were we get the stranger falling from the sky 
So our thoughts on The Stranger. I don't want it to be Sauron. I just want it to be something else, but I don't know what. (laughs) Well, I personally don't want it to be Gandalf. (laughs) Well, why? (laughs) I thought that at first, but I'm, I'm kind of softening and I'm almost starting to want it to be Gandalf. Uh-huh. I mean, we, we were both crying about that last night Ooh, on episode three. Yes. Oh, sorry, you've you well, it. Well, Lorianne, you yeah. said no spoilers, but I, I, <laughs> no, want to, I want to say I want to say a single word, friend. Um, <laughs> yes, we were both in tears. We were both in, yeah. in uh-huh. tears of joy. And then the fireflies and things like that. Yeah, I was, yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of fire stuff. So I I was seeing some Gandalf there. So I was was kind of wondering about that. Also, when he seems to kind of command nature, I and mean, when Nori comes up and he's not sure if she's friend or foe, I wondered, you know, obviously Gandalf's got this relationship with nature, and so does Tom Bombadil, it's worth saying. But um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when the trees all seem to kind of rage forwards mm-hmm. in Nori's direction, yeah. were they trees or were they ants? I also wondered. And mm-hmm. would, would Gandalf or Tom Bombadil have that relationship with the ants so it could then credo to that as well? Mm-hmm. I would love him well, to be. I just feel as though it, mm. bringing in Gandalf as this stranger character for me would be not as satisfying. I feel as though it would be more interesting for it to be someone who is, well, he looks it and fell and feels fair, but as opposed <laughs> to someone who looks fair and feels fell. I yes. feel as though. I would be more impressed with the choices and storytelling if it were a different person who became a, uh, the character behind the stranger. Yes, I mean, but that it, may just be me with my personal preference in terms of <laughs> the writing. Of course, you know, I have this image in my head of the five wizards arriving and Kid and greeting them, and the the scene with with giving Gandalf the ring. And I I was married to that for so long, but uh, and I resisted that the idea that they would they would meddle with that. Uh, but then intriguingly, again, I'm, I'm sort of going off piste here because I'm going to read from the Silmarillion now, which again, they don't have the rights to. But it was a, a little section that I was always intrigued by and always, always, always wanted to know more. Again, just for people who've only read Lord of the Rings or only seen the Peter Jackson films, uh, you know, we know that Gandalf is effectively sort of immortal because he, he dies and gets sent back. But I remember reading uh, before I'd read the Silmarillion that uh, before Gandalf or the person that we know of as Gandalf was was incarnated in this uh, this presumably human body. Uh, he was uh, a spirit, a Maiar spirit called Olorin. And I was so anxious, uh, excited to read the Silmarillion and find out more about Olorin. And it's torturously very little, but all we get, it's so intriguing. Um, uh, yeah, of Olorin, that tale does not speak. No, um, for though he loved the elves, he walked among them unseen or in form as one of them. And they did not know whence came the fair visions or the promptings of wisdom that he put into their hearts. That uh, blew me away when I first read it. And I've, I've always been intrigued by this idea that, that before he was Gandalf, Gandalf presumably came to Middle-earth or at least mm-hmm. Valinor and walked among the elves disguised as one of them. So, you know, you, you could have Gandalf or Olorin in it feasibly before he is one of the Astari. So, could that be who the stranger is? Or perhaps that would get them in trouble with the estate. I, it's difficult to say. <laughs> oh, Mark, you mentioned Tom Bombadil. Mm-hmm. I guess that's uh, something I want, really, because <laughs> you, you know from when I first read the book how much I love Tom Bombadil. And there's something about the uh, 
the, the whimsy of Tom Bombadil um, that really appealed to me when I was a Pink Floyd Sid Barrett listener when I was uh, 15. And I was always so disappointed that Tom Bombadil didn't feature in the films <laughs> And then thinking, yeah. oh, it'll definitely appear in the extended editions and, and yeah. still not. So I always feel like, although he's only in it briefly and he gets mentioned a few times, he's such a fascinating character and he mm. deserves to be explored more. And I feel like it would be a missed opportunity, given Tom Bombadil's age, yes. if he didn't appear in The Rings of Power. And I thought in terms of The Stranger having that relationship with nature where he seems mm-hmm. to be able to bend it to his will and has this kind of reciprocal nature reciprocal relationship with nature I thought could the stranger be Tom Bombadil so that was my early pet theory yeah but then I'm kind of with you Chris thinking he does seem more Gandalf than Tom Bombadil it doesn't mean that I don't want Tom Bombadil (laughs) to kind of appear in another way somehow I would love Tom to be involved yeah well what's remarkable I was thinking that the um the Tom Bombadil chapters are quite self-contained within the fellowship to the point where you could almost adapt them pretty much word for word with with either poppy or nori yeah yeah encountering old man willow and tom and goldberry showing up they could almost do that whole section um but uh anyway time is is pressing on uh and i think we're <laughs> Lorianne, do you have to shoot off soon uh, uh shortly so i'm so uh, I will... but i'm enjoying this so much i oh, hate to yeah. even say it but <laughs> <laughs> uh so before you have to leave us uh i just wanted to ask everybody's opinions apparently the showrunners uh already know what the final scene will be in in, in mm-hmm. at the end of series five um and that obviously you know it's a great spoiler people know what happens with the lord of the rings and and the last alliance and the ring being cut from sauron's hand but what do we think is going to be the final shot where are they going to bring it up to i'm going to throw my hat in the ring with they'll get andy circus <laughs> to be in it as smeagol and it will end mm. with him finding the ring and my okay precious. <laughs> oh that's good well i was going to end with belladonna took getting married oh <laughs> well that would be lovely but oh, i want a belladonna took series i want a belladonna took <laughs> yeah. in the series yeah so that's where i might end i might i might but i like your yeah because we gotta gotta get all the circus we can get for the next few decades <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely Catherine, how about i'm not you? sure why but i kind of in my head i'm picturing a uh kind of culmination of uh, these things that where we are going to see the beginnings of the Shire and we are going to see yes. men establishing themselves more firmly in, in places like Minas Tirith and you can mm. see Lorian, not Lorian, Galadriel <laughs> in her role as the Lady of Lorian. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. yeah, Yeah. Oh, yeah. She needs to be home, right? Yeah. And Celeborn needs to Actually, show up I would at some really point. like to see <laughs> Actually, I would really like to see something with the uh, Lorian with her and her daughter instilled, oh. not instilled there, installed there as she is wearing one of these rings of power. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yes. that uh, the ending of this uh, culmination of the 40 episodes is with the Dark Lord having this ring of power, but also we have the Lady of Light with the ring of power. And mm-hmm. so I think it would be a good contrast. Oh, yeah. That that would be that would be lovely, yeah. Because of course Sauron never controlled the Elven Ring, did he? So there is that brilliant, uh, yeah. Mark, how about you? How do you want the series to end, or what do you think that last image will be? I think Catherine's on the right path. I think given that Galadriel is kind of the um, 
the, I'd say the main protagonist of the show, um, and rightly so, I think Galadriel is uh, an underexplored character, so it's great to see her kind of leading the show. I feel like, I don't know exactly what, but I think it will end with Galadriel, um, but I don't know doing what. Mm. I'd kind of like to think that since, even though it's not kind of clear-cut that it's in the Peter Jackson universe, yeah. it very much nods its head to it and tries to be re- more than respectful, I would say. I mean, they've even got mm-hmm. Howard Shaw doing the theme. Yes. I wonder if it would be something to do with the mirror of Galadriel that might kind of have some casting forward to perhaps more familiar oh. characters uh, from mm-hmm. later yeah. on. So that's what I think. Uh, I, I definitely think it will centre around Galadriel, whatever those last scenes are. Yeah, I think anything with Ooh. Galadriel in will be, will be wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Uh, so before we wrap up, um, just where can people find a sacred fellowship? Well, the easiest way is to go to asacredfellowship.com. It's our website and we do a lot of uh, blogging. There are links to all of our social media things, but our main uh, venue is a sacred fellowship on Facebook and that's where we get to have a lot of fun with the people interacting with the, the media as well as interacting with the podcast. Oh, Some fantastic. new guy just joined us. His name is Melkor. Looking forward <laughs> to getting to know him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. We're hoping he doesn't get a little more goth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he's got a, a lovely friend. Yeah, he's got a lovely friend called Anatar. Uh, <laughs> yes, very yes. generous. Yeah, <laughs> very generous fellow. And, and of course, rings the, podcast, the, bell. <laughs> the podcast is called the Sacred Fellowship, also, and that's on Apple. I think Google. You can listen through Podomatic.com. So there's a and number of different ways Spotify. to hear that, and Spotify. And it is. Um, I we hope it would be a, a, a good introduction to the Silmarillion because we're going yeah. chapter by chapter, and because I'm such a newbie as well that you know this is my first time going through so um let's do it together come listen to our episodes on the Silmarillion yeah it's a wonderful way to read I think once you've read a chapter to then be part of a discussion and digest things and really yeah it's, it's, it's fantastic so presumably you're about to cover uh the Acalabase yes we are perfect timing yeah and you know, yes. again yes. spoiler warnings for any people watching the series <laughs> what is it that the Numenorians keep saying Mark the sea is always right they might change their mind on that <laughs> um well again one thing talking of Numenor uh, I would like to touch on uh, the score briefly as well. You mentioned, Mark, the Howard Shaw credits, mm. but we've not mentioned Bear McCreary. Oh, well, I think we've lost Lorien now, but uh, <laughs> well, the three of us uh, are here, we'll, we'll, just, um, we'll just wrap up with, uh, with our own uh, credit sequence. As it were. <laughs> um, I thought that was a wonderful sort of passing the torch thing with Howard Shaw doing, doing the opening credits. A bit like how, you know, the, the, the actor who voiced Gollum in the animated film was also in the radio dramatization, which featured <laughs> Ian Holm, who obviously was Bilbo, and now we've got Howard Shaw. But it was like every adaptation kind of hands something over to the next one. And I believe the actor who played, um, is it Ori in, in the Hobbit movies, uh, is one of the orcs in Rings of Power too. So I like, I like that, that shared DNA, yeah, and the, and I think Bear McCreary's score, again, not to harp on, but I did actually get to chat to him uh, briefly uh, down in Leicester Square at the premiere. And he's such a lovely guy. And he looks like a wizard. Uh, and he's a <laughs> huge fan of the books, huge fan of the films. And he said that he wanted uh, his music to have 
the flavor of Howard Shaw's score. So if you watched all of Rings of Power and then went immediately to the Peter Jackson films, that it would feel like it was in the same universe. And I think that definitely shows. I think it definitely, at least for me, the uh, most stark example of that is the Sauron theme. The yes. bum, 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 bum. It has yeah. a very Nazgul take to it, but also the music that we hear as the uh, last holdouts of the Fellowship are traipsing towards the Mount Doom. Yes. It really sounds a lot like what we are hearing in that. And Mark, you and I were talking about how um, uh, the 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 Numenor theme has a kind of vaguely uh, Egyptian feel to it. Um, but also visually, oh, we can talk about episode three now that laurie has gone. I, I, know, I know she said spoilers were fine, but I just can't bring myself to, to spoil things for people. Uh, but I loved the way, I mean, it was stunning, but also it had, um, it was sort of slightly Greek as well. Mm. Uh, and yes. obviously, obviously massively has this kind of Atlantean vibe. Uh, and I thought that the score really summed up that, um, like Mark, I think it was in the, our first Lord of the Rings episode. You said you can't think of big statues without thinking of Ozymandias, <laughs> <laughs> and you get you know the splendor of Numenor, but know that it that it's a tragedy. And somehow he's captured that with the, with the swell uh, mm-hmm. of those strings. I think music's so important as well, and to bring things back to Doctor Who, as always, what was, was always. ever thus. <laughs> One of the things that me and Chris and certainly a lot of people, I think, miss about Doctor Who these days is, um, without wanting to knock Sagan Akinola's score for the Jodie Whittaker era, Murray Gold's music for the Mm. the Eccleston, Tennant, Smith and Capaldi eras kind of nailed what Doctor Who is. And it's quite hard when you have such a dramatic change of that. And it makes you realise how much the heart of things music is and how much it kind of leads your feelings and expectations. So it's really lovely to have somebody taking that mantle from Howard Shaw and being really respectful and doing something that's new, but running with the amazing foundations they built there at the same time. And that's probably one of the things that's kind of ticking that 15-year-old box to me, that the music is so beautiful and me and Chris bought all the soundtracks, the original oh, yeah. films when they came out, and we listened to them so much. And it's so exciting to have somebody else's take on that, but a take that's faithful to those Howard Shaw scores, which are masterworks. And funnily enough, in in a, in a musical sense, in a creative sense, we're, we're back to that letter uh, that I quoted at the start of the episode about something that retains the core of of the source or the original. Uh, and you you know you feel like. Um, Bear McCreary is treating Howard Shaw's score the way that the writers are treating Tolkien's text. I think it's just yes. perfect, perfect marriage. Well, oh, my well. primary uh, fandom outside of obviously Lord of the Rings and anything Tolkien and anything Doctor Who, I began with Star Wars. And so I have had a great love, obviously, for John Williams' music. But we have yes. Michael J. Aquino's score for the Rogue One soundtrack, where it is scored to sound like the original movie the 1977 star wars with Mm. where it was very brief motifs that were assigned to specific entities within the universe and then we developed those more fully in the other movies but i found that him using that was a great homage to the john williams and to the universe that he's really created 
within his music. And so I feel as though Bear McCreary's work so far has been emblematic of something the same way. It is music that is done by a fan for the, those who are fans already. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like I can't wait to hear more. <laughs> um, and well, that about wraps it up, which means, Mark, we're finally done with The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it feels like we've been doing this since May. <laughs> uh, if only Tolkien had written any other books for us to visit next year, who knows? Um, uh, and if you haven't listened to the episode of Bite and Write that we recorded with Catherine, uh, you can find that at uh, in our Instagram stories. There's a link to that uh, that conversation where we talked about Doctor Who for an hour, um, a bit like <laughs> this conversation. Although that time we were actually supposed to be talking about Doctor Who. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Catherine, thanks so much for joining us once again. And Thank you. Uh, again, pass on Thank our thanks. Thank you so much for having us. It's yeah, been a lot Anytime. Well, I look forward to listening to your episode on uh, the downfall of Numenor. Spoiler alert. Uh, and, uh, the one that has the... Atalante in the title. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and the Rings of Power next, presumably. And Can't wait. So yeah, I'll be listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Lovely to see you again. Thanks once again to our guests, Catherine and Laurieann. Make sure you check out their podcast, A Sacred Fellowship. Uh, and that's it. We're done. We finally finished The Lord of the Rings. The sends are the ridge of the Lord of the Rings. Rings. I've just had a call from Disney. They're remaking <laughs> the entire trilogy. <laughs> Strap in. <laughs> What's next? Uh, next, we are moving away from the world of Tolkien, um, narratively, <laughs> but not necessarily geographically. We're we're going Ooh. a little bit up the road from Stonyhurst. Yeah, we're near Hurst Green. Hurst Green and Goosner. Yeah. yeah. Now, what's so, in Goosner? Well, apart from a few lovely pubs, mm. uh, there's a rather famous haunted house called Chingle Hall, which a friend of ours, Zoe Swan wrote a fabulous book about. So, next month, we will be discussing Chingle Hall by Zari Swam, which I think is rather appropriate for Halloween, don't October, you? October, spooky season. Mm. So we've got Chingle Hall on the 1st of October. That will be out. And we might even surprise you with a bonus mm. Halloween episode we later might. in a month. We might. So, yeah. We'll, we'll see, see you then. You